In February 2004, Maura Murray emptied her bank account, drove four hours from school, crashed her car, got out, and vanished. Everyone has a theory. Was she murdered? Was it suicide? Did she run away? Join the search as an investigative reporter and former U.S. Marshal uncover new evidence, interrogate new witnesses, and trace down new leads in this riveting new investigative series. The Disappearance of Maura Murray, Saturdays at 7, 6 Central, and 9, 8 Central on Oxygen, the new network for crime. Previously on The Disappearance of Maura Murray, I've explored the theory that she may have intentionally run away to start a new life. If she was going to get to Canada that night, how would she do it? Searching for a motive, I spoke with her friends and family. Did you sexually assault Maura? No, of course not. How insidious can anything be? And we followed up with a sighting in Canada. The eyes, the skin tone, everything on the face doesn't correspond. Now, I don't believe Maura escaped to a new life. It seems the only way to find out what happened to her after her crash is to ask the people who were there that night. Was anything about the scene unusual to you? Yes. We were dispatched to that call. We drove out. There was nobody at the site of the accident. EMT Dick Guy was one of the first responders to Maura Murray's crash site on February 9th, 2004. Was anything about the scene unusual to you? The part that was inexplicable to me was, why would anybody shave off the inside of a corner? If you lose control of a car, you generally would proceed in the direction that inertia would take you, as opposed to a, a tight maneuver like that. If it were slippery, you generally go off the outside of a curve. You don't go through the inside of it. Mm -hmm. Didn't make sense. And then we proceeded to look around the car, and my partner says, what's with the rag in the exhaust pipe? And I'm like, wow, what is that? I wondered if she might have stopped at the store maybe half a mile before, and somebody had sabotaged her car, trying to make it stall. Do you ever hear things around town, like rumors or people talking about it? Absolutely. What do you there are hear? lots of theories. There was um, the story about some young men who worked at the ski area over in Loon that lived and would have driven by that site on the way to work that didn't show up for work that night. That's the one that sticks in my mind as being the worst possible scenario to me, is that somebody would have abducted her, taken advantage of her, done something bad. Dick Guy isn't the only person who has speculated about the significance of the rag. For years, web sleuths have used the rag as a basis for all kinds of theories. Once the rag was noticed at the scene, it's obvious that there's something not quite right. So it should have been treated as evidence.
you know, maybe she stopped somewhere, which we think might fit into the timeline, and then somebody put the rag in the tailpipe to have the car stall out and then kidnap her or something, follow her, right. If someone with bad intentions met Mora on her drive, accounting for the missing hour, and then shoved a cloth in her car's exhaust, would that have even worked? Could it have caused her to stall out and lose control of her car? To find out, we're meeting with a local mechanic. Hey, Maggie, I'm Scott Fitzgerald. Nice, nice to, to meet, meet you. you. Art, Art, nice to meet you, Art. Scott Fitzgerald has expert knowledge of early model Saturns, just like Mora's. And he's going to get this Saturn to run just as poorly as Mora's ran in 2004. The car she had, had it ceased to be uh, drivable. It would smoke something fierce. A cylinder was blown. This should drop the cylinder down. So if one was down, how would the engine be running? The engine would be running roughly. They call it a skip. It'd be skipping, it would be chugging. Now that we got it running, like Morris' car, misfiring, running rough, and we'll put it up in the air and we'll try that rag theory. That's uh, what we're talking about. Okay. We're running the test at cruising speed because we know the Saturn's airbag deployed upon impact meaning the vehicle must have been going at least 25 miles per hour. You can see how badly it's shaking. It's, right. You can hear the skip coming out of the exhaust system. So I will go ahead and, and try to put this in. So I've got somebody in the car. They can rev the engine up to a couple thousand RPMs. It would be about cruising speed, say. Right. Let's see what happens. Yeah. yeah. OK. Can you bring the RPMs up to about 2,000, please? Wasn't long at all. Kill it. So this would not make a car stall. I don't care if you put that whole thing up there. It's Mm. still not going to stall. The mechanics test clearly proves that Mora's crash wasn't the result of sabotage by a rag. What do you think? I'm thinking somebody put the rag in the tailpipe after the accident. Yeah. Because we have the witness statement that there's a flurry of activity behind the car. Was that somebody putting it in the tailpipe? Art's right. Whoever put that rag in Morris' tailpipe did it after she crashed. But who would do that, and why? Morris' dad, Fred, has thought about these questions endlessly for the last 13 years. Fred, what do you think happened to Mora? Somebody grabbed her. It, it was a bad guy. Once you go around that corner, it's the forest. There's no street lights. You get big snow banks. You can't get away. Obviously, the key part we want to do here is find out what happened to Mora. But the second thing, too, Fred, is there's a lot of theories out there, especially as it relates to the rag and the tailpipe of Mora's vehicle. Do you know why it was there? Because that me. tons of controversy me, me. out there. 100% me. OK, All explain me. that. Here's exactly what I told him. Yeah. I said, if you, if, you would, if you had to drive, do not drive this car. Do not drive it. You will get pulled over. You know, her car had, it, it lost a cylinder. It was oil, uh, the smoke blowing out the back. But if you see the police, you have to get by them. You, this probably won't work but you could try this. 
you could put a rag in your tailpipe might get you past the, the police parked on the side of the road looking at you go by, going by, you know? You might make it, you might not, probably not. Although it's some pretty unusual advice, there's also a part of me that understands why Fred would tell his daughter this. He simply wanted Mora to avoid being pulled over. Fred, what is one of the most frustrating things about this for you? You can't find out what went on without constantly trying. You know, you think you're on a hot trail, but pretty soon you're looking at all kinds of dead ends. In his pursuit of leads, Fred has bumped up against New Hampshire law enforcement. Whenever I suggest something, you know, uh, that, that may have happened, we'll look at that, we'll look at that. But what does that mean? How do I know they ever looked at it? Fred felt like the police were not pursuing Morris' case properly or sharing enough information with him. So he sued the state of New Hampshire in 2006. State investigators have amassed 2,500 documents in connection with Maura Murray's case. Fred Murray's attorney says keeping the file secret is against the law. His lawsuit went all the way to New Hampshire's Supreme Court. The state won. It's incredibly hard and uh, it's, it's terribly frustrating. Fred believes he knows why law enforcement has been so reluctant to open their records. Right down the street is the breadbasket of uh, northern New Hampshire, which is the skiing industry and the camping in the summer and the, the tourist industry. It's the lifeblood of the state's economy. So nothing can go wrong with that. And the surest way to mess that up would be, would be major crime. The police have squashed it for years, except they didn't gauge this one right. This time, the plan didn't work. I haven't given up and gone away. I've tried to take the lack of cooperation and hold it up for everybody to see. This is your state police. God helps if your daughter ever gets lost up here. This is what you're going to get. See this big piece of nothing? They got a hunk of that for you, too. Fred, why are you upset with the police? General intransigence, uh, lack of communication. I think they're hiding something. Fred Murray has been intensely critical of New Hampshire law enforcement since the day his daughter disappeared. If they're not going to be part of the solution, I don't want them to be part of the problem. When I began looking into Maura's case a few months ago, one of the first things Art and I did was submit an official interview request. We asked to speak with the police officers who first responded to Maura's crash and others involved in her case. The New Hampshire Attorney General's office told us they would consider it. But I'm not hopeful. Nearly everyone I've spoken to, from podcasters Tim and Lance to Maura's family, has told me about the police stonewalling them. Who in law enforcement would you like to speak with that you haven't been able to or haven't gotten a response from? Cecil Smith. Cecil Smith, who was the first responder, would be very interesting to talk to, I think. Have you reached out? We've yeah. reached out to all these people and have not heard back. Many people have said it feels as if New Hampshire law enforcement has spent over a decade concealing the findings of their investigation. Fred thinks the deafening silence is covering up something sinister. Everybody has a kind of a basic innate fear of the police. 
you know, and they don't they don't question the police much, you know, and but the police are like any other group. Every group's got some good guys, some bad guys. Well, the police do too, you know. So there's nothing sacrosanct about the police. They don't sit at the right hand of God. Some think the police may just be incompetent. What we're saying isn't necessarily, oh, well, the cops killed Mora and they're covering up after one another. I suppose it could be that, but I don't believe so. What I think is more likely is they're covering up a botched investigation. But I'm not so sure. Could the police really have botched the investigation and are engaging in a cover-up? If so, could their attempts to cover it up have jeopardized their ability to actually find Mora? The police never contacted you? No. No law enforcement persons no. ever talked to you? No. The Just, cops didn't interview her? I know. That is kind of shocking to me. From a law enforcement perspective, like, how much of a mess up is that? It's a mess up. Even when I have to testify, I always refer back to my notes or the report that I did at that particular time, because you're going to forget those types of details. Some of the police theories you read about online feel plausible. Was the search for Mora in the days after her disappearance exhaustive? Did police do all they could to find her? Or did they have enough resources? Small towns usually don't. Why won't law enforcement release the case files or at least share them with Fred and ease his pain? And some theories are pretty dark. Could the cops have had a hand in Mora's disappearance? Did one of their own play a role in her possible death? I need to explore all of this for myself in order to make my own decision. Hi, Maggie, how you doing? Hey, Art, I'm good, how are you? Got an interesting call back from the New Hampshire Attorney General's office, and uh, it looks like uh, Assistant Attorney General Strelzin is going to go ahead and uh, give us an interview. Uh, he wants to sit down with us first before we talk to anybody else, so... Wow. I mean, that's great. That's really great. Getting Jeff Strelzin is a big deal for us. He's been on Mora's case since day one. He's one of the key reasons why law enforcement has remained silent for so many years. He's also done very few interviews with the media about Morris' case. If we get him to open up, it will move the needle forward in a way no one ever has. I really want to try and understand how it was initially looked at and investigated. I think there's a lot of questions about that. How extensive was the investigation from the beginning? We've got to be mindful that we might get a lot of, I can't comment on that. Are you surprised at how much attention this case has gotten over the? I'm not because really over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years with the advent of the internet, people really take an interest in what we do. They take an interest in police, prosecution, and people love a mystery. And this is a mystery. And I think people like the challenge too. They want to be the ones to solve it. People have said that you guys know where she is. We don't know where she is, and we don't know where she was going, and we don't know what happened to her. We have done searches, interviews, grand jury work, forensic testing. Um, we followed up on leads from psychics. I mean, we have done 
Anything that there is to follow up on it, we've done it. What particular tests have you done? I can't get into the specifics because it's an open criminal case. Now, there, there's been a lot of talk, and I know we have tons of armchair detectives out there. That internet have, experts. Yeah, internet experts. And a lot of that stuff has been critical of law enforcement. I mean, what is your take on that? People form opinions on less than perfect information is what I would say. Throughout this investigation, there hasn't been a person of interest or a suspect. Have you ruled anybody out? So it's our practice not to name suspects in a case. We don't typically ever do that. But have people been ruled out that you've looked at and said, OK, definitely not? I would tell you that it's difficult to rule anyone out until you know what happened. Butch Atwood is now dead. Have you tried reaching out to his wife to ask more questions? I'm not going to give you any specifics about who we've talked to or what we've done in the case. He was the last person to see her. Maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. We don't know that answer until we find out what happened to Moore. Stralsen is notorious for keeping details about Mora's case close to the vest. Sitting across from him right now, it seems like he has a non-answer for everything. Um, I know Fred Murray is frustrated that he can't see the files. Why can't Fred see the files? We have shared more information with Fred than anyone else, but we want to protect any potential case. And we've explained that to Fred over and over again, that that's why we're doing it. If it turns out that Moore has been the victim of a murder and we were able to find that perpetrator and prosecute that person, having information that's only known to the investigators is critical. Being able to say in a courtroom, the reason that defendant knew that is because he or she was the killer, not because they read it on the news or read it on the blog. If there is a killer out there, the last thing we want the killer to know is to know what we have or don't have. If there is a killer out there, the last thing we want the killer to know is to know what we have and don't have. Lead prosecutor Jeff Strelzen is defending his department's handling of Maura Murray's disappearance. You have an adult, probably had been drinking, gets in a relatively minor accident, and decides they don't want to be there away for the police. So that's something fairly common for law enforcement to have happen, which is why initially nobody really thought this was anything more than that. So that the woods area wasn't really searched that night? No, nobody would have okay. gone out in the woods that night. Because again, they're not thinking that somebody is going to be out right. in the woods. Do you find it strange that she disappeared in such a short window of time that every witness, and there was a couple, happened to just all turn around around the same time and not see where she went? No, I mean, it only takes a few seconds to turn and walk away. And if she doesn't want to draw attention to herself, she could have been 20 feet off the road behind a tree and no one would have seen or heard her. It's certainly possible she was right there nearby watching everything and waited till everybody left. I get it. That may be possible. But the adult who was possibly drinking was a young woman. And the senior assistant attorney general has to know that some 70,000 women in the U.S. are currently missing, many under similar circumstances. So in this dark, cold, remote spot, it just makes me wonder if Strelzen's answer is good enough. What is your actual opinion? About what happened to her? Yeah, about what happened to her. I think there are three things that could have happened to Moore. Number one is she decided on her own to leave voluntarily. I think it's less probable, but it is possible. 
The second one is that Maura was injured and wandered off into the woods somewhere and likely died of hypothermia, and her body is somewhere out in the woods. People have said there's no way that Maura could have just ended up in the woods and just collapsed and died of hypothermia. And I'm like, that's absurd. It's, it's a very real possibility. It happens all the time. But I think people say that because the woods were searched. Doesn't mean anything. I say to people, Excellent. how many dead animals have you seen Ooh. in the woods? Zero is what most people will tell you. It's an interesting point. And in these woods especially, it would be challenging to find anything. They're so dense and vast. The third one is that somebody took her and hurt her and killed her. And she was a victim of foul play. There's also the fourth option that some people think. The police had something to do with Mora's disappearance. You know, the idea that what the local police did something to Mora Murray, what is that based on? People want answers, they don't, they don't like loose ends, so they start to point fingers. I get it, but that's not evidence. My question for them is, well, what in particular did they do wrong? What law enforcement did and didn't do is what Mora's family has been angry about for years. They can't answer why they didn't drive two minutes down the road. They can't answer why they took 38 hours to start the investigation. Adults can and sometimes do decide to simply leave and take off for whatever reason. They're allowed to do that. There's nothing illegal about that. After starting slowly, Strelzen finally opened up to us. And I'm hopeful that our request to interview more police will be granted. In February 2004, Maura Murray emptied her bank account, drove four hours from school, crashed her car, got out, and vanished. Everyone has a theory. Was she murdered? Was it a suicide? Did she run away? Join the search as an investigative reporter and former U.S. Marshal uncover new evidence, interrogate new witnesses, and trace down new leads in this riveting new investigative series. The Disappearance of Maura Murray, Saturdays at 7, 6 Central, and 9, 8 Central on Oxygen, the new network for crime. As we wait to hear, a sad yet important day has arrived. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us on the 13th year since Maura Murray mysteriously vanished from this exact location. Every year on the anniversary of Morris' disappearance, people gather in New Hampshire to discuss new leads, theories, and rumors. There's so much that surrounds the accident scene that just does not make sense. The event is organized by local resident John Smith. The questions that surround that night in that area are questions that need to be answered. We should get answers. They're simple answers that would not interfere with the prosecution of this case unless it is one of their own. A former police officer, John wanted to do everything he could to help. It was 2004 in February. The news story came on the local WMUR TV station. She crashed her 1996 Black Saturn sedan here on Route 112 in Woodsville. The case caught my eye because it was 17 miles from my house. And then I was just like, well, you know, no big deal. It's only a couple days. Today, police brought out search dogs for a second time. And then when I saw the next report, she had been gone now, whatever, almost two weeks. I was like, well, where did she go? 
that was what really intrigued me, and that was when I called Mr. Murray, where I wanted to help the family find their way around, help them do any interviews, and that was when two days later, two New Hampshire State Police detectives came to my work. They said, look, you're interfering with an investigation. If, if you continue, we will arrest you. And what made you change your mind? I mean, the police were telling you they were going to arrest you. I was a cop 30 years ago. I know enough to know what's interfering with an investigation is. So to me, that's telling. It's, it's, there's something there that, that they didn't want me to know. And that's what drove me. With Fred's blessing, John dug into the police investigation. I've gone down too many roads in the past 13 years, literally and figuratively. And I've looked at places that I believe that, yeah, she could be being held captive there. We have witness statements that don't match narratives. This catches my attention. He's referring to all three neighbors around the crash site. Tell me a little bit about that. What points you in that direction? The Westmans have had different stories. Butch Atwood had different stories. I mean, you know, the Marats said they saw somebody at the trunk, but none of that was reported in the narrative. It was only said in the papers later. John has asked for reports and clarification from the police. His requests have been denied. You're familiar with how the police work. You don't think they're just doing their job and holding some of this back because they can't share it? No. There's too many inaccuracies, the lies, Maybe they're just, you know, bad police work, but I see them as lies. So what would the police be lying about or covering up? The timeline. The timeline is just, it does not make any sense, especially with Witness A. He is alluding to a theory that I've read on blogs. A passing motorist referred to as Witness A reported seeing a black and white SUV number 001 nose-to-nose -nose with Mora's car at the accident site. But neither an SUV nor a vehicle marked 001 is in the official police records as being on the scene. There's only one SUV in the town and says Haverhill on the side, and it's SUV 001, black and white. Who would have been driving 001? The chief usually drives 001. Haverhill's police chief at the time was Jeff Williams but he's never reported to have been on site at Mora's crash. What would be the one question you would ask him if you had one question? What did you do with Mora Murray? There's only one SUV in the town and says Haverhill on the side and it's SUV 001, black and white. Who would have been driving 001? The chief usually drives 001. What would be the one question you could you would ask him if you had one question? What did you do with Maura Murray? Murray family investigator John Smith says former Haverhill Police Chief Jeff Williams may have had a hand in Maura Murray's disappearance. His theory is a popular one. It centers around someone called Witness A, who says they saw his SUV parked nose to nose with Maura's Saturn after she crashed. But Chief Williams was not reported present at the crash site that evening, nor was his SUV 001. So that makes someone lying about the vehicle. It's witness A, or it's the police. What do you make of that? The only thing I can say is that Jeff Williams in the town is known that he's driven the cruiser drunk. 
I've talked to plenty of locals that have told me that. He had been stopped before for DWI. Could the chief have caused Mora's accident? Or did he stumble onto Mora in the aftermath of her crash, playing some role in her disappearance? And you take witness A's account? I take witness A's about 100%. Genuine, genuine person. Um, story, 13 years later, is not wavered one iota. John is saying that while other witness accounts have changed over the years, witness A's story never has. After concealing her identity for most of the last 13 years, she's decided to speak with us on camera. You didn't want to have your name attached to this. It didn't feel like it would be safe for me to do that because obviously something bad happened. I don't know what or who. Right. Because I'm thinking if there's some kind of wrongdoing with law enforcement, it was kind of scary to me. But they know who I am because I called and told them who I am. So then I thought it would be safer if people knew who I am. The official police report states that at 7.27 p.m., Faith Westman called 911 to report a car off the road outside of her home. Sergeant Cecil Smith arrives at the crash site at 7.46 p.m. It's this official timeline that Karen takes issue with. It was dark when I left my office. And from my office, I made a phone call home to say I was on my way, which I always do because it's a very long stretch of road with no cell service and no houses and no lights. Do you remember what time you left work that night? Not exactly. My guess is that I may have left the office at 10 past 7, 15 past 7. Depending on weather and road conditions, it was roughly a 40-minute drive from Karen's work to home. And where was Mora in that? Maybe a quarter of the way. Okay. When I got to the corner by the weathered barn, the police car was there. And there was another car facing it. They were nose to nose on the right. It didn't even look like an accident to me. What it actually looked like is she had driven her car onto the wrong side of the road, and it was just up against a snowbank. I don't remember seeing any people standing in the cars or whatever. I, I don't remember seeing any anybody there. I pulled over to the left and turned and looked. And I said, no, there's not really anything I can do. The police are here. It doesn't look like a bad accident, and my cell phone won't even work here, so why, what do I have to offer? And this is where Karen's timing becomes critical. There's no cell service between the accident site and Beaver Pond, the first place she would regain cell service, roughly a 14-minute drive away. When I got to the Beaver Pond, I made a phone call to say, I'm coming into town. Karen's phone records confirmed that once she had cell service, she placed two calls in quick succession, the first at 7.52 p.m. If we take into account the one to two minutes Karen estimates she stopped at the accident scene and back time the drive, that puts Karen at the crash site at approximately 7.37 p.m., nine minutes before Sergeant Smith arrived at 7.46. 
So if Sergeant Smith was nine minutes behind her, who was driving the police SUV? But Karen knew none of these details at the time. She only knew that 21-year-old Maura Murray was missing. photo first appeared on missing... I remember seeing it on my TV that she was missing. And um, they said, you know, if anyone knows anything, call us. And I, I told them, I said, you know, car 001 passed me. And they went, wait, car 001? Are you sure it was 001? And I said, absolutely, without a doubt, I know it was 001. A day or two later, I got a call back from the police department, and they asked me, are you sure it was 001? And I thought it was odd that they would call back, and that's, they didn't say, like, are you sure you didn't see anybody? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were like, are you sure it was 001? And I said, yeah. If Karen's account is accurate, what and who did she see? Could it have been Chief Williams, who was known to have driven SUV 001? Could he have been drinking and caused the accident? Or did he stumble into the accident and then engage in some kind of foul play? What about a possible third theory, that Karen may just not have had all the information and Jeff Williams wasn't involved at all? No one knows because the police have never spoken about it. I think it's significant that what I saw was before the police reported to have arrived. And so that says something's wrong. Do you wish you had gone back and asked if you could help? um, Sometimes I do, and sometimes I think that I may have disappeared too if I did. I feel it's risky to say it on camera, but I don't totally trust the police. Did witness A see something that could implicate the police in Mora's disappearance? I have to interview former Chief Jeff Williams and Cecil Smith, the police officer who was supposedly first on the scene at Mora's crash. But we're still waiting for permission from prosecutor Jeff Stralsen. Fred Murray thinks the cop's code of silence exists for an additional reason. I think they're hiding their own lack of performance, lack of proper performance. The very first thing is the fact that it's a state-patrolled highway. The local police were there too, but their jurisdiction ends 100 yards up the street. So we know that no search happened beyond those 100 yards by the local police. The person that can search down there, who is the state cop, who's there. And it's his, it's his beat. Cecil Smith, the local Haverhill police officer, couldn't search across his line of jurisdiction. But local police told Fred about another officer on scene who could have, a state trooper named John Monahan. I met the commanding officer of the state police, the lieutenant. The New Hampshire State Police didn't know that they had a, a, one of their own offices there. They said, we didn't hear about that. My heart just absolutely sank right through the floor. If Trooper Monahan was on site, wouldn't he have told his supervisors or filed his own report? Could he have seen something he didn't want to share? 
Did it have something to do with what Witness A saw? Or did he neglect to search for Mora in his jurisdiction and is covering up his own actions? Monaghan has never said in public why he didn't alert his superiors. My daughter has not been saved, and they're not talking, and they haven't talked since. Their guy on the scene of a missing girl that hasn't been seen in 13 years. What did you do, mister? Law enforcement's silence seems like why the public thinks they really could be hiding something. So Art and I have placed an additional request into the prosecutor, Jeff Strelzen. We also want State Trooper Monahan to sit down with us. Maybe, if they all talk, we can put this theory to rest. Maybe we'll all agree with Strelzen that they're simply protecting an active case. Two weeks later, we get a breakthrough. We can interview State Trooper Monahan and local officer Cecil Smith. There's only one condition. Jeff Strelzen will be in the room during both of our interviews. How are you? Good. I'm John Monaghan. Art Roderick. It's this kind of move that makes those interested in this case suspicious of the police. There's been a lot of things said about law enforcement and what they did and didn't do. Is there anything that you would like to clear up or say to just any of those people? Sure. So this is really the first time I've been able to openly talk about my story. I heard a call come in for a car crash on Route 112. So when I got to the scene, I, I pulled up and Cecil Smith was already there. And I rolled down my passenger side window and said, hey, what's up? Do you need me to do anything? And he said, well, Butch, this bus driver, is checking up in the Mountain Lakes area. And I said, well, I'll, I'll look around and I'll, I'll check some of the back roads. So I did. We know the neighbor, Butch Atwood, told police he spoke to Mora after the crash. It's interesting to hear that Sergeant Smith enlisted Butch's help and didn't consider him suspicious, like so many people do. I turned around and I went back towards Swiftwater. It made sense that you would go back toward where there's more civilization. So I, I confined my search area to where I knew there were people and uh, stores, because it appeared that's where the car must have come from. And didn't see anyone, didn't see any footprints. So about an hour later, I left. You didn't get out and interview any of the neighbors? No, not, not that night, no. Right. We did do a bunch of follow-up investigation, but, um, but that evening, no. So Monahan searched, but only from his car and he didn't go east, the direction Fred was hoping for. We know that no search happened beyond that, those 100 yards by the local police, east in the direction she was headed. The person that can search down there who is the state cop who's there. And it's his, it's his beat. And then a day or two after that is when my lieutenant called me and he's like, hey, did you help Haverhill with a car crash? And I said, yeah. And he said, is there a report? And I said, no, I did a, what we called a general service report, right. just assisted other department. Right. And he said, well, I think we're gonna need to pull a report on it and write a better narrative. If this is true, this would explain 
why when Fred met with Monaghan's superiors two days after the accident, they didn't know that Monaghan was actually on scene at the crash site. Such a simple explanation. So why haven't they told Fred this and put an end to his speculation? Can you tell me a little bit about what was done in the follow-up investigation? I think I went to three places that had surveillance cameras. Cumberland Farms, DP Quick Stop, and then Shaw's in Woodsville. It's still where it was. It's named Shaw's today, but back in 2004, it was called Butson's. Crime writer James Renner told me an eyewitness thought she saw Mora and two women there just before the crash. This sighting supports James's theory that Mora ran away with help from someone she knew. I pulled the tapes just to see if Perhaps uh, she had stopped there right. on her way through, didn't find anything. Mora was not in Butson's. This important confirmation puts another dent in the tandem driver theory. Have you heard anything about, like, this witness A? Right. I, so that was one of the things that somebody said, hey, did you see that there's this new theory? It's not what I, what I saw. I, I pulled up and Cecil was there, uh, and so, uh, and then I left. Monahan seems like a straight shooter, and I feel he answered truthfully. Could he have conducted a more thorough search that evening or searched in a different direction? Probably. But I don't think he engaged in any kind of a conspiracy. Sergeant Cecil Smith, however, could be a different story. This is his first interview about Maura Murray, Hi, Maggie. Nice to meet you. Hi, Thanks for meeting with us. Yeah, Hi, how are you? Yeah. Ever. I was dispatched to a, the report of a, a car accident, and uh, I came around the corner, and there was a black vehicle in my lane facing me, and there was no one around the vehicle. Sergeant Cecil Smith was the first law enforcement officer at Maura Murray's crash site. This is his first interview ever. I could see something red had been splashed on the driver's side door. And then I also saw something splashed on the ceiling of the vehicle. I could make an educated guess that it was wine from the box of wine that was sitting behind the driver's seat. I went and talked to Mr. Atwood. I said, did she look like she was hurt? Because when I made a quick check of the vehicle, both airbags were deployed, and there was a crack on the windshield, driver's side. He said, no, she looked shaken up, but she didn't look hurt. But I think she'd been drinking because she slurred her speech, and uh, she had to lean on something while she was standing there. Um, he said, I asked her if she wanted me to call the police. Nope. No, please don't call the police. What did you make of Butch when you spoke with him? I didn't speak to him very long. I, I just probably less than a minute, I would say. And I, I didn't know him before, so. This response is intriguing. I didn't ask him if he knew him. So it's an odd piece of information for Sergeant Smith to offer up, unprompted. It makes me wonder how he'll answer another important question. Have you heard the the theory that there was another officer on the scene before you, that the, the report by Witness A? I've heard of that, but there was, there was no one there when I got on scene. 
What vehicle were you in? I was in the uh, uh, Explorer 4x4. Um, and the reason that would have been, it was around this time of year, winter, right. you know, February, snow on the ground. So according to Officer Smith, he was driving the SUV, not a sedan, as everyone has speculated. And according to this account, the former Chief Jeff Williams was not remotely involved. Were you at all concerned, thinking that there was a, a girl who was maybe drinking out in the cold? Yes. I did check in the immediate area. East, it would have been, uh, checking both sides of the road. Granted, I didn't get to go a great distance, but I saw no indication that somebody had gone through the snow. Did you ever talk to the family, any of the family members? I did. Fred, I explained it to him, and he said, well, you know, she had an accident a couple days ago. She's all depressed. You know, she might have done the old squaw. Like, what's that? Well, you know, you're depressed, and you go out in the woods, you step off the trail, and you die. <laughs> Hello. For more on this case, visit Oxygen.com. On February 9th, 2004, Maura Murray nearly emptied her bank account, drove four hours from school, crashed her car, got out, and disappeared. Everyone has a theory. Some people think she was murdered. Some people think she committed suicide. Others think she ran away. What do you think? And there's a new search. As an investigative reporter, a former U.S. Marshal, two wildly popular podcasters uncover the evidence, interrogate witnesses, and track down new leads in this riveting new investigative series, The Disappearance of Moore Murray. Saturdays at 7, 6 central and 9, 8 central on Oxygen, the new network for crime.